This is the Kingdom at Hand podcast, and I am Pastor Joe Faldet. All of our sermons are archived on our website, www.hosannafreelutheran.com. We also have started a YouTube channel, and that is Hosanna Free Lutheran. And you can check out the videos there. You can also come visit us in person. We have Sunday school at 9 a.m. and worship at 10 a.m. Sunday mornings during the school year. We also have worship at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings during the summertime. May God bless you through this. So, I don't know if you can tell or not, but uh, in all honesty, I'm a little nervous today because I, <laughs> Linda too, Linda, you did an excellent job. Um, because I don't often preach sermons like this. This is more of a teaching time than a preaching time. Because as we begin our study through the book of Judges, uh, we need to understand how do we study story? Because we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And the way that we interact with the book of Ephesians is by its very nature different than the way that we interact with the book of Judges. And the reason for that is because Ephesians is an epistle. It's a letter. It's really a, a, con, it's a condensed teaching. Whereas Judges is story. Judges is narrative. And very different genres. And as both of them are inspired... We need to take them in, in light of their genres, you know, because we don't read story like we read teaching. You know, we don't read teaching like we read law. And so as we approach scripture, we don't read law like we read prophecy, although there's some overlaps there and I'm not getting into that right now. But uh, yeah, we'll put that aside. Maybe one of these days we'll go through the book of Deuteronomy and uh, look at how law and prophecy and all of those connect. But uh, we approach them differently, and as we approach them differently, we need to understand that. And so, uh, over the last three months, two months, I've been contemplating, how do I talk about this? <laughs> how do we look at story? So, that's our introduction. With that introduction, I'm not even going to ask you to rise, because we don't have any scripture reading to do right now. And so, if you have to sit a little bit, a little bit longer, I hope you don't fall asleep um, any more than normal. No. Uh, so as we begin, let us pray. Father, I ask for wisdom. Lord, and I ask that you would bless this time, and that as I speak, may it be your words. Lord, may I speak clearly, Lord, that we might grow and that we might understand how to study story. Lord, and as we study these stories, this scripture is made up of so many stories. Lord, how do we approach them? What do we learn? How do we look at that? Lord, we pray that you'd bless this time and guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, to start off with, there's some principles that we need to interact with as we think about stories. You know, think about narratives. And these fit specifically with Scripture, but they also like interact with the rest of the world too. And so as you're studying any story, I don't know, you guys probably don't study a lot of stories anymore. I know college students do. But, uh, you know, how often do you sit down and read, like, the last biography in terms of a study? But the first thing is, when we're looking at story, we have to ask the question, is story, well, okay, what, what do I mean by story? So when we think about Scripture, 
Genesis is primarily story. You know, and then we get into Exodus. Exodus is a lot of story. Numbers is a lot of story. Um, and then we've got the books of history. You know, we've got Joshua all the way up through, um, all the way up into the book of Psalms. So, you know, up through Job. Job's kind of an in-between. And then we've got the book of Daniel. And some of the minor prophets have some story in them. Isaiah has some story. And then the Gospels are story. And the book of Acts is story. And so those are the story like those are the histories that we have. And so as we think about those books, and as we approach them, one of the questions we have to ask is, is this prescriptive or is this descriptive? Do you understand the, the distinction there? So as I read about David, um, you know, taking Bathsheba to be his wife and killing Uriah the Hittite, is that God telling me to do that? Or is that God telling me this happened? God telling me this happened. He's not giving me advice as to how to get a second wife. Or actually by that time that was David's fourth. Um, that, that's not advice to me. I I'm not getting into any jokes there. Um, and so like that sort of thing is descriptive. This is what the people of old have done. This is how they interacted with the world. And then we have to take that description and then we apply that. Now when we're looking at the Gospels, we see Jesus. And Jesus, his life is prescriptive. Like he's teaching us then how to interact with these things. And there are times in story when we should take what they did and we need to apply that to our lives. Now, you know, with David and Goliath, that's both descriptive and prescriptive. But that's not very good like warfare sort of prescription. But it's trusting God prescription. And so God's telling us to trust him like David trusted him. He's not telling us whenever you see a giant to take out a sling. You know, there's a distinction there. But people get messed up in this. And actually there are church denominations that exist. Because they see the book of Acts as being prescriptive in an absolute sense, and not being descriptive with prescriptive elements. Because I know that there are churches, there are denominations that don't have kitchens in their facilities. And they're, because we never see people eating in churches in the book of Acts. And in 1 Corinthians it says, don't you have homes to eat in? And so then we can't have kitchens in our homes. And since the early church didn't have any music, didn't have... You know, like instruments that they just sing a cappella. Uh, we had a, Kirsten and I had a friend from the Church of Christ, and, and they just sang a cappella. Well, he didn't so much, but as a denomination, they didn't believe that instruments were meant to be in the church. You know, they could sing, but they couldn't play. <laughs> so, um, why, why do we have an organ? And a piano, and a violin, and a flute, and a guitar, and percussion instruments. Why do we have those things? Because these stories are descriptive. They're not telling us, this is the way you must worship from now on. They're saying, this is the way that the people worshipped. Does that make sense? So you get that distinction. Descriptive versus prescriptive. Prescriptive says, do it this way. You know, when Paul's writing in the book of Ephesians, that's prescriptive. Husbands, love your wives. That's prescriptive. That's not just descriptive. Well, it might be for most of you or some of you, but it's prescriptive for me. Paul's saying, Joe, you need to love your wife. He's not saying, Joe, it's nice that you love your wife. See how that goes. 
So we need to make that distinction. When we're reading story, not all of these things are prescriptive. They're descriptive primarily. And then there are aspects that we can prescribe to ourselves, but primarily they're descriptive. Secondly, there is the distinction between a primary and a secondary audience. We've talked about this before, but I don't know if you remember or not. We are a secondary audience. These things were written for us, but not to us. Because when the book of Judges was written, whoever the author is, we'll get into that in just a little bit, whoever the author is wasn't writing it for Joe Faldet, who would live in America in 2019. Like that, I wasn't his target audience. He was writing it to a contemporary audience. They're writing these things for people that lived in that day and age. And we are the beneficiaries of that. But they were the primary audience. And so they're going to use language. And they're going to be speaking about things that we don't understand at times. Simply because we don't know where these towns are. But they did. That doesn't mean these towns didn't exist. That's what some archaeologists are saying nowadays. Well, we don't know where these cities are. And so we don't think they ever existed. And so obviously this must be... um, Fiction. It's like, no. The author wrote this for someone that was living in his day and age, and they knew, well, we know where Hatsor is, but, you know, they know where, they knew exactly where Gibeah was and which Gibeah that was talking about. And so when they were writing this, they didn't have to make the distinction. We have to make the distinction because we live, you know, almost 3,000 years later. It's a long time. So, They're going to have knowledge that we don't have. And they're going to have cultural norms that we don't have. Is it right for me to judge someone's culture that lived 3,000 years ago because they don't look like Americans? No. You know, we judge them based upon their own culture. This is what they knew. This is what they did. This is how they interacted with each other. You know, this is, I don't know, how many of you women call your husbands Lord? Got some interest. Kathy does, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it, Soren? Um, <laughs> you know, but that's how Sarah, there you, you know, that's, that's how Sarah treated Abraham. She called him Lord, my Lord. You know, and that was a cultural thing. But at the same time, it was a demonstration of respect. How did she show respect to her husband? By calling him Lord. If Sarah started calling Wally Lord, that might be in mockery, not so much in respect. You know, because the words aren't the things that matter. It's the culture that they come out of. And then that teaches it. And so in that day and age, when you called someone Lord, that meant something. That was a signal of respect. When, you know, my grandmother-in-law says to my grandfather, Okay, Lord. That's not a thing of respect. That's a thing of kind of poking fun at him. Actually, she has made the statement, I will never call him Lord. Or, I haven't called him Lord yet. That was the statement that she made. Yeah, not never. Never say never. But uh, she has huge amounts of respect for him, but she's unwilling to call him Lord. So the culture is important because we need to read these things in terms of the culture in which they're written. And so we can't look at this and say, well, I would treat my wife this way, but then King David goes and treats Anna this way. You know, does that mean that I need to start treating Kirsten like King David treated Anna? Well, no. Because it's descriptive. And because that was an effect of their culture. And so as 
yeah. Does that make sense? So we're a secondary audience. So these things, we learn from them. We apply them into our lives. But they're going to be written in ways that we don't necessarily readily understand. It takes study. It takes thought. It takes time to understand story. Because we're reading something that was written to another people who had different knowledge than we have, who lived in a different culture than we do. Any questions? Well, because God, well, there's a number of reasons why we look at the stories as important. Um, okay, I didn't put that in there. They're illustrations. Stories are often illustrating truths. And so as we interact with the stories in the book of Judges, we're going to be applying these things. As we apply them, we're going to bring truths out and show how that story then illuminates these truths. Because you have Paul saying, um, husbands, love your wives. Well, what does that look like? Well, we've got stories for that. You know, and that's where stories come in handy. Because stories are really good for illustrating truths. How does this thing look fleshed out? You know, what does it mean for me to trust God? Does that mean that I can just say the words? Like, we're, as a Christian, as someone who's interacted with Muslims back when I was college, in college, one of the attacks that they brought towards me to try to get me to question Christianity was, well, you say that you just have to believe God, and then you're good. I was like, well, that's true, but what do you mean by belief? And then I can take them to the story of David and say, see, that's belief. How David was willing to confront Goliath. He was willing to put his life on the line because he trusted God. So what does belief mean? It doesn't mean me just saying a creed. It means me living it out. And so the re- one of the reasons for story is that it illust- they illustrate the truths. And as we read, those truths become clearer and more plain to us. You know, why is it so important that parents train up their children in Christianity? Why is it so important? We run across that time and time again in the book of Judges. Because what happens to the children that weren't taught to walk with the Lord? They walk away from the Lord. And so that's one of the purposes of story. And so thanks for that, Kevin. Why do we read the stories? It's because they help us to illustrate, to flesh out, to see these teachings at play over generations. Because that's one of the beautiful things about story, too, is that they're condensed versions of reality. And so we can read the book of Judges, and we can look at what happens over generations. Whereas in my own life, you know, I'm 37. I don't know that much. I haven't experienced that much. I might have experienced a lot for a 37-year-old, but in all reality, I haven't experienced that much. But if I read the story, I can, I can see Eight generations in the book of Judges, or however many. I don't actually know exactly how many. But I can see how God worked over this many generations. And so what happens when the people stop, start going astray? What happens when the people walk with the Lord over generations? What happens to a culture? What happens to a people? Otherwise, we get stuck in the mud. You know, we just get stuck in the weeds. We only see what we see right in front of us, as opposed to seeing the bigger picture which story also brings to light. <laughs> Any other questions? Good question, Kevin. Thank you. So this is story. Story takes work. It takes effort. 
It's not as easy as just reading an epistle. But it's so much richer because you get so much more view of what happens when people disobey and what happens when people do obey. When they trust God, what happens when they distrust God. So how do we do that? Confirmance, take note. This is what we're going to be talking about this year. This is what our adult Sunday school talks about. The, not my Sunday school, but the other Sunday school. The Titus Sunday school talks about observe, interpret, apply. This is actually the same thing, basically what we're going through in our James study as well. And it's fascinating to have seen that his is here. And so his is uh, highlight, um, explain, apply, and respond. And so that was the James study talks about walking through those steps. When I formulated this in my own mind, it was observe, interpret, apply. So the first thing we do as we study story is we observe. And you might say, well, of course we observe. That just means reading it, right? No. It's bigger than that. Because have you guys ever read something and then been done reading it and realized you don't know what you read? I've done that. <laughs> you know, gone through a couple paragraphs and you're like, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> as we're reading scripture, as we're reading anything, does it do us any good to read it if we're not paying attention? I still don't know exactly how I do that either. Because like, I can go, be going through all the words, but my brain's not engaged, and I don't know what's going on. Um, but when I say, you've got to focus. You've got to look at what's going on. When I say observe, watch the text to see what stands out. What becomes embossed, or as the here um, analogy is, what is highlighted? So as you're reading something, have you guys ever read something and just had one phrase just stick out from that thing? You know, like, oh, that's important. That's maybe not key, but that's important, and it just stands out from the rest of the text. And when you're done reading the text, that's the thing you're thinking about. That's what you're supposed to be observing. It's at that stage, you take note of that. Because as you're reading story, as we're reading anything, what interests you is important. Because that's what's going to stand out. And the funny thing is, I don't understand at all points in time what interests me. I don't know why some things stand out and why some things don't stand out. But whenever something does stand out, take that as important. Because all scripture is God-breathed, right? And so if all scripture is breathed out by God, then that means all... It's all important and it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Paul tells Timothy that. And so we take that to heart. So when this thing stands out, that's the Holy Spirit saying to me, Hey, Joe, this is something to look at. This is something to think about. This is something to try to understand. Instead of just reading it over and saying, Okay, I'm done with my devotions today. You know, that's like the person in James who looks at the, looks at the law and looks in the mirror and then leaves forgetting what he looks like. Like, James says, don't be that person. Sorry, that's a fall, that paraphrase. But here, it's to observe it and to see, okay, what's standing out? To ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, you have to guide me in the understanding of your word so that the things that do stand out, I can trust that that's him. And so that as that text stands out, that might be a word, it might be a phrase, it could even be a whole paragraph. You read a whole story, it's like one paragraph becomes super important to you. Well, why? What do you do with that? That's your second step. You have to interpret that. And the observation is really important. 
that you actually observe what it says. Because I, I am firmly of the belief that the reason that we have so many denominations in our world and that we have such division within Christianity is because people are either A, unwilling to submit to what the text actually says, or B, unwilling to actually look at the text itself. Like, what, what does it say? Uh, I th- so, to illustrate, I'll take infant baptism. Because <laughs> I know that that's something that people always like talking about. Um, why is it that I believe in infant baptism? It's because of one word. In Romans 6, Paul says, For all of you who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. When I read that, when I was struggling with whether or not I should be a Lutheran, whether or not Lutheranism had any validity, any reality, if it was just a throwback to an ancient time, I read that as in. All, don't you know that all of you, don't you know, you can tell them Paul was a Norwegian, um, at least the translators were, that all of you have been baptized in Christ. Well, what, is it, what would that mean? That means that if you're already in Christ, you can be baptized. That's the time to be baptized. But then I was reading the text, and it struck me that it doesn't say in. It says into. There's a big difference. Because in is something that doesn't move. Into is a demonstration that something is doing moving. If I walk into a room, that's different than if I walk in a room. If I walk in a room, my position hasn't changed. If I walk into a room, my position has changed. I go from being outside to being into. And it was that into then that changed my view of baptism. Because I saw that baptism is something that changes you because of the word into. And so once I observed that, and then I interpreted that, once I observed that that's actually what it says, I had been reading this wrong all of my life. And now that I read that and I saw the distinct, made the interpretation of the distinction, it changed my application. There is another one. John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. So does that mean that Christ has come that we might have fullness of life? No. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. This means that Christ has come that we might have the abundant life now. Well, No, that's not what Jesus says. That's not what John quotes him as saying anyways. What Jesus is saying is you can have life and you can have life fully. It doesn't mean you have the abundant life because usually when people talk about having the abundant life, that means that they have whatever they want. They get lots of stuff. And that's not what Jesus is saying. And it's just because they're not looking at the text. They're not willing to submit to what the text actually says. So what does Jesus actually say? He says, I have come that they may have life and have it, have it, have life abundantly. So it speaks about how much life I have, now how much stuff is put into my life. Does that make sense? And so when we interpret, our interpretations need to be founded upon observations. When we observe, we have to actually look at what does this say instead of how does this make me feel? Because this, how does this make me feel? Well, who knows? But what does this say? And then what does this mean? The difficulty of answering the question, what does this mean? Is that we have to answer that in context. Because as I read scripture, 
is it right for me to read Scripture in light of Shakespeare? No. I can read Shakespeare in light of Scripture because Scripture existed when Shakespeare was written. But I can't read Scripture in light of Shakespeare because Scripture came first. And so I can't bring that into that culture. I have to look at it in the culture that it was written. I have to look at it in the text that it was written. Judges is written differently than Acts. And so it has to fit with the book. However I interpret this, it needs to fit within the paragraph that it was written. It needs to fit in the verse that it was written. I can't just pull out a word and say, well, okay, so uh, Christian science. Yeah, Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy. Uh, How many of you know anything about that? It's fascinating. Um, If there's any Christian scientists listening to this, um, you have a fascinating religion, but I disagree with it. Um, She took words like Adam, a word, Adam. And she said, that word, Adam, you look at that word and it says, a dam. That means it's something that blocks you up, something that keeps you from getting what you want. And so whenever you see the word Adam, you have to interpret that to mean a dam, something that blocks you up, something that keeps you from getting what you want. And I was reading her book on this because I read everything I can, and uh, essentially everything I can. And I thought, that just changes the way that you view Scripture. And now these sentences no longer make sense because someone, something who blocks you up knew his wife and, you know... They begat Cain and Abel, and it's like, that doesn't make any sense. And so if your interpretation doesn't make sense in the, in the context in which it's given, it's wrong. It needs to make sense. And so, you know, this postmodern idea that you can interpret anything out of Scripture. You can make Scripture say anything you want it to. You've heard that. I've heard that. I've had someone come to me and tell me that. They're like, oh, you can't use Scripture because you can make Scripture say whatever you want it to. It's like, you can if you take it out of context. But if you limit it to the context in which it's written, you can't make it say whatever you want it to. Because you say something, you know, like, and God formed Adam. He's the first man. So God formed a blockage that keeps you from getting what you want. doesn't make any sense. So you can't do that. And so if it doesn't make sense in the context, it's an incorrect interpretation. Because we submit to the scripture itself. And so that context, that context starts with the phrase in which it's written. And then you move out to the sentence. It might make sense in this like prepositional phrase, but does it make sense in the rest of the sentence? Because you know what? These authors of scripture, they're not schizophrenics. They're not just flying all over the place. It makes sense. It's got to make sense there. And so, okay, your sentence makes sense. Does that make sense in the paragraph? Okay, now your paragraph makes sense. Does that make sense in the book? Okay, now the book makes better sense. You know, now you understand the book. And it fits in the book. You know, because if I'm reading this in the Old Testament and I think that this is talking about Shakespeare, it's like, yeah, probably not. So it makes, has to make sense in the book. Then it has to make sense in the context of Scripture as a whole. And so we work our way out. We want to test our interpretation. That's how we do it. Does this fit the context, the context, the context, the context, as we work our way out? And some of you are looking at me like, really, you do that? I do. I do that. I work really hard to do that. It takes a lot of work. But if you're going to say, I really think this is right. That's what you got to do. You have to test it according to the scripture itself. Believe it or not, I don't go back to Luther. I stay in the scripture. 
And then I'll, after I get to that point, I'll look and then I'll start looking at other contexts and other commentaries and say, okay, did, did they come up with anything else? Is there anything other that I'm missing here? Because we often miss stuff, right? Because if I'm standing here and, I'm, I'm, and I tell you, hey, look, there's a pulpit up here. Is that true? Yeah. Does it say anything about the altar or about the baptismal font? No, because I'm looking at that. And so why do we look at commentaries? So that we get a fuller view and so we can see everything that's going on around us. And so the commentaries help us with that. But if I want to know that that, uh, that pulpit is there, I have to prove it. And it has to fit in within the context. But we can't stop there. It becomes bigger. Because Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So we can't just leave this at a state of knowledge. You know, he who says that he has faith but has no works, his faith is dead. And so then, not only do we have to interpret properly, this is here, this is what this says, that word into is there, we then have to bring that into our lives. Because if we can't bring it into our lives, odds are we have an incorrect interpretation. If I can't figure out how to properly apply something, either I haven't thought about it enough, which that happens too. We actually walked through that um, in our council meeting one time talking about the Trinity. Um, But it means I haven't thought about it enough or my interpretation is wrong. And so I have to be able to bring this into my life. It has to become a part of me because I can't just have this knowledge without having these works. It It has to play out. And so... It's not, and it's not, how does this apply to Laverne's life? This is, how does it apply to my life? This has to change me, not the other person. You know, I can't read Scripture and say, well, Kirsten's really got to get her act together. No, because I'm the husband. It's my responsibility. It starts with me. You know, and that's what Dr. Munseth talked about when he talked about revival. I've talked about this before, but it's so important. When we pray for revival, how do we pray for revival? Well, we draw a circle on, on the floor and then we step into it and say, okay, God, start by reviving everything in this circle. It starts me, here. It doesn't start at Wally. It doesn't start at you guys. It starts in me. And so as I apply this, it's how does this apply to me? How should my life change? How can my life change? What would God have me do in light of this truth? Does that make sense? This is how we interpret Scripture. And then as we study story, we study story and we interpret Scripture in light of that. So if I come up with some crazy interpretation from the book of Judges that doesn't fit with what Jesus teaches us in the book of Matthew, pretty good understanding, and I'm probably not right. Or if I come up with some crazy interpretation and it has no impact on my life and I can't use it at all, pretty sure I either need to A, think about it more, or B, it's probably not right. Or if I say something and you're looking at it and you're like, that's not what the text says. Pretty sure it's not right. And then it's your guys' responsibility to correct me on those things. Did you know that? Because you're my congregation. We're in this together. This isn't just me teaching all of you fools. This is all of you fools keeping this fool in line too. Pity the fool. No, no, don't quote don't quote Mr. T. I um, have to put that as a, in, in light of scripture, yeah. Yeah, you, correct me in light of scripture. That's where this all comes from. You know, because that's the foundation of our faith. 
the truth of the word of God. Any questions? Does that sound just absolutely overwhelming? I'm sorry. We'll walk through it. And that's one of the benef- that's one of the glorious things about getting to preach is I get to walk you guys through this stuff. We often I often don't talk about the observation phase, but if you look at the sermon notes from the past, we always walk through the interpretation and the application phase. We're always looking at those things. That's what the sermons are based on. The interpretation and the application. What does this mean? What does this mean for I ask the question, what does this mean for me? And then from there, I can ask the question, what does this mean for us? Because it has to go through me first. I can't just point the figure at Janet and say, I don't need to change. She does. Janet. Yeah. More than one Janet. (laughs) I need to. So. Judges. What about the book of Judges? Who's the author of the book of Judges? Um, Jewish tradition says it's Samuel. Could be. We don't have a name on it. What does that teach us? It wasn't important. If it was super important, God would have made sure that the title, that the name was added to it. Not super important, but something to take note of. This isn't just willy-nilly, because the Jews had very strict guidelines as to what became Scripture and what didn't become Scripture. And so it's not that they just added stuff because they felt like adding stuff. It had to have been written by a prophet. If it wasn't written by a prophet, it wasn't scripture. Period. End of story. And so the Jews rejected it out of hand. If it wasn't written by a prophet, it was rejected. And so what do we know? The fact that this is in the Jewish Old Testament, that the Jews went through this stuff. And there's all sorts of stuff that scripture quotes and talks about, that's not added to Scripture. So the Jews, there were lots of books during that day and age. It's not like they only had, well, however many books are in the Old Testament. I don't know that number right offhand. But it's not like they only had that many books, and so they made that their Bible. Like, no, there's lots of books. Because you've got the book of Jasher. And you've got the book of the wars of the Lord. And then you've got the chronicles of the kings. And you've got the books of the lives of the kings. You've got all of these books. And the Jews said, these are Scripture. These are in a different category. These are written to us by prophets who have proved that they walk with the Lord. The prophecies have come true. And they contain prophecies that are for the future. And these are written by reliable men. Prophets. Whose prophecies have come true. Because they attested the prophets. You know, at least the godly Jews did. Ungodly Jews, well, they were ungodly Jews. So they did what ungodly people do. And they just did whatever they felt like. So that... Who was this written by? We don't know exactly. Quite possibly with Samuel. That's what the Jewish tradition says. But we're not told. And I'm not wise enough. And I've read all sorts of stuff as to other possible authors. But like, I'll just stick with the Jewish tradition and then add to that. But we don't know for certain. But we know it was a prophet. So God inspired somebody. Could have been Samuel, might have been someone else. But God inspired somebody to put this into book format. And the Jewish people said, this is distinct. This is scripture. Purpose of the book of Judges. There's a lot of debate about that. Some people say that it was someone trying to say, this is why we need a king. I would disagree with that. Because nowhere in scripture does it really elevate human kingship. 
human monarchy. Human monarchies, God actually tells the people of Israel during the days of Samuel, when the people wanted a king, they said, we want a king. Give us a king. Give us someone to lead us. Samuel comes to God and says, God, what did I do wrong? Again, Paul, that paraphrase. What did I do wrong? God says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So what was an earthly king in God's eyes? A rejection of his ultimate kingship. They wanted someone to lead them in battle like everybody else. It's like the person who wanted the boy who wants to get married or have a girlfriend because everybody else has one. It's like, that's not a reason to do it. I'm not getting into dating advice now. So the purpose of the book of Judges, it wasn't like to propose monarchy to the people of Israel. It was really to show, as far as I can tell, this is where we came from. And this is why things are the way they are right now. So if it was written during Samuel's day, which I could see, why is there so much ungodliness? Well, here's the history of that ungodliness. One of the commentaries that I read actually called it the Canaanization of Israel. And so Israel came in and defeated the Canaanites for the most part. Well, but how did those Canaanites then come to affect the people of Israel? Because if they were a holy people, what happened? You know, we ask that question of churches nowadays too, don't we? Like, what happened to this church? We, this is the way their fathers were and their grandfathers. And, and they were solid and they preached the gospel and they knew the Lord. And, and you can see these works and these glorious things that they did. And now we look at it and it's like, it's dying. Why is this dying? What's going on? You have to look to the history. That's why the book of Judges, as far as I can tell, was written. It gives the people of Israel, during that day, probably during Samuel's day, could have been later, but it, probably during that day and age, a history so that they can look at this and say, oh, I get it. And so then we can look at that and say, if we don't want our children or our grandchildren to be there, we need to take this stuff to heart. Because, hey, why are we here now? Well, it's probably because of the stuff that happened in America, you know, in generations back, and that's affecting us. How do we prevent that from getting worse? We get our act together. We walk with the Lord today. Timeline of the book of Judges. The book of Judges was not written to establish a chronology. It was written to establish a history. And so when we interact with the numbers in the book of Judges, we don't see them as being sequential. Because different judges existed in different parts of Israel. Some of them probably existed at the same time. But within each of those sequences, we get to see what's happening to the people, how long the judge judged, what happened after the judge died. That's kind of the sequence. But that doesn't mean then the next judge comes up. Because there's the Philistines, and then you've got the Hittites up north, or the Syrians up north attacking. And so I've tried, I've followed the advice of some of the other commentators and tried to follow through the numbers, and I can't make them add up. So then that makes me think, probably not a chronology. But the timelines are important, because they're in there, and they teach us. And as we go through, we're going to apply some of those things and some of those teachings. But don't see this as being a simple chronology. Because it's not just a simple chronology. It was meant to establish a history, not a chronology. Do you understand the difference there? A history is a focus on the story. Chronology is a focus on the time. And so it wasn't meant to establish time. But it was to teach about the people that came before. So the purpose of the book of Judges is to teach us about the people that came before so that we can understand where we are right now. Because that's the purpose of every history. 
And then where do we go in the future? Keeping that stuff in mind. Questions? Okay. Good good question. How did you get to the status of a prophet back in the Old Testament? And actually, um, there's a couple of stipulations. Um, one of them is, you know, on the internal. And so the unobservable stipulation. God has to speak to you. But, you know, I can stand here and say that God has spoken to me. I've actually interacted with a lot of people in my life who have said, God has spoken to me. And then they go and rattle off craziness. And it's like, yeah, it wasn't Nathan either, by the way. <laughs> he's, never, he's never claimed that God has spoken to him before he rattled off craziness. Um, <laughs> but internally, God has to speak to me. And so that's my internal call. This is one of the things that Lutherans talk about. The internal and the external call. So the internal call comes to me. God speaks into my soul and says, you have to speak this stuff forth. The second part is actually the more, I can't say it's more important, but this is how we know. Um, First off, they make a prediction that, well, in the book of Deuteronomy, God gives us the stipulations. They make a prediction that comes true. That's evidence that this person is a prophet. Because if you make a prediction and it doesn't come true, Don't fear them, God says. They're not a true prophet. And so just disregard them. Ignore them. They're just blowing smoke. And so if someone makes a prediction that doesn't come true, they're not a prophet. If they make a prediction and it comes true, then you bring them to the second level. And that second level is, are they telling you to follow the Lord or are they telling you to follow another God? Because if they're telling you to follow another God, they're not a true prophet. They're someone that God has sent to test you. And that's what we're told in the book of Deuteronomy. That they become a test as to whether or not I'm going to follow the Lord. And that same thing actually should go for pastors. Because if a pastor is preaching something that's not out of the scriptures, then you should disregard him anyways. And then if he's preaching something that seems to be out of the scriptures, but it's telling you to walk away from God, then you should disregard him. And actually at that point, they should probably be stoned. Um, not pastors, the prophets. It, it, it would probably clean up our pastorates a lot if we started stoning ungodly pastors. Um, yeah, maybe I should cut that one out of YouTube. Nah, we'll leave it in there. It might get me demonetized. I don't get monetized anyways. Um, and so how did you get to that point? God spoke to you and you spoke forth the word of God. Usually God would put a prediction on that to prove that this was actually God speaking it forth. Because God says, I know the end from the beginning. And so how do you know the prophet? He's able to speak the end. Before it starts. And so it's, I can't claim to be a prophet and, you know, talk about Trump's election back in 2016. It's like, yeah, I knew that that was going to happen. Obviously, I'm a prophet. It's like, whatever. You know, who's going to win in 2024? That's where the big question is. You want to prove your validity? You want to prove that God's actually talking to you? You say something for the future that we don't even have any inkling of yet. You know, that's the true test of a prophet. And so it took years to test these prophets. But when they were tested and they were verified, then they were held in high esteem. But during their day and age, it was tough. You look at what happened to Jeremiah. Look at it, you know, look what happened to um, Elijah. 
You look at what happened. Well, Elisha was held in pretty high honor. But Elijah, he was chased around by Ahab. And, you know, they tried to kill him a number of times. And Jeremiah, he was stuck in a prison. And then he was mocked. And then he was put in stocks. And then he was ultimately killed. And, yeah, it wasn't fun. But they did this because God told them to. And they put predictions on that so that the people could know, indeed, it's God who's speaking to us. And all the prophets said the same thing. And actually, all godly men of all history have said the same thing. Follow the Lord. And so if that's not in there, don't trust them. Does that make sense? So that, that's their standard. That's what they went with. And people claim to be prophets nowadays. And we should really hold them to the same standard. The people claiming to be apostles nowadays, too, they should be held to that same standard. Are they actually showing the works of an apostle? Are they calling us to follow the Lord? Are they leading us in godliness? Or are they doing this for their own grandeur and glory? Any other questions? Easy peasy, right? (laughs) All right. I apologize that we didn't get into Judges today, but next week we'll start on Judges 1. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these stories. We ask that you would guide us as we come to study them, as we try to understand them. Lord, understand how to understand them. Lord, bless us. Lead us. We need you. And we thank you that we have you. Lord, that your Holy Spirit is at work in us, guiding us. Lord, may we be humble and submit to the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.